0: This morning, we are going to be looking at a couple of different ways in which Scripture makes it clear that that humankind sits at a level, a place, in the world established by God where nothing else sits. And I want to start uh, with a video. There's Nora getting her first bath. Boy, well, she's really calm now, huh? Probably feels good. The water feels good, yeah. She probably likes that. <laughs> and you got her heated with all that heater. Look how small her head is next to Jessica's hand. <laughs> That's my daughter in law. do you that think, so Nora? Nice. Does that feel good? The space heater is pretty cute. Yeah, it gets, it keeps it toasty. This is her her very first bath. How did she do last night? This is about twenty two minutes long. Well, she's pretty regular every two hours. Well, good for her. That's okay though. It's a step up from the four hours of constant. Right. Yeah. Megan. Hmm. He would wake us up almost every time. I showed Megan. Megan's like, "Why are you filming me?" And Robin's like, "If you put the camera on me, you're dead meat." (laughs) <laughs> but you can just see her reflection if you look closely, but don't let her know I said told you that. The clock? No, the fact that she's so like. Oh, yeah. And she's warm, probably. She is so small. Well, she's sure not fussing. No, she's not. Yeah, she's like the water. She's a good girl. She's sad. <laughs> look at her. She's like... Ooh. Bathe me, bathe me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. I'll leave it there for now. Well, I love being the preacher where... Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, like, I'm responsible for all that. Um, I love being the preacher who can show videos of his grandchildren in front of all these cabinets. Like, what are you going to do, get up and walk out? Like, you have to sit and watch it. <laughs> Um, there are certain feelings, though, that we have in response to something like that. It doesn't have to be your grandchild for you to watch something like that and have feelings of, uh, of warmth, or, oh, I just realized my wife's sitting in the back. Hi, dear. Um, <laughs> oh, the things that we can't get away with when we're caught all of a sudden, um, It's just so wonderful to have that experience of of life, and of blessing, and love, and warmth. All those things go into the feelings that we have, and like there's probably many of you who even I mean even if you're thinking oh great he's going to show videos of his granddaughter, you know. There's there when you see it. There's part of us that still go, oh, like isn't that adorable? Like isn't that precious? Isn't that isn't that cute and wonderful? And and then you, if your mind goes at all, then you start thinking about these young parents and the tenderness with which they're going to, you know, they're caring for this little tiny baby, and uh, there's just so much there that that I think lifts us above and beyond what we might be otherwise. It expresses that there's something about us as human beings which is magisterial. And we know our sinfulness. We understand who we are before the Lord. But we also know who it is that has placed us in the position that we have. And these kinds of experiences Reveal that to us. They show us just where God has placed us. And experiences of love and care and beauty, they just do that to us. They show us something about ourselves and about where God has placed us. Look at Genesis chapter 1. It's hard to find this in the Bible. I won't give you the page number. I think you can find it. Genesis chapter 1. It's the very first book, the very first chapter. And I want you to look at verse 26 with me. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that all that he had made and it was very good. And so he has placed us in a position He's put us at a preeminent kind of spot so that above all of the things we stand in creation. Well, we have the same kind of thing, I think, go on in us in terms of this loftiness about us when we look at nature. It's not just looking at a baby that causes this kind of thing. But when you look at something beautiful... There is something that happens inside of you. We're the only creatures that look at the mountains and are amazed. We're the only ones that consider the stars in the heavens and all that's there and are absolutely blown away by what it is that we see. And it moves us and it touches us. It even causes us at times to, to sing. And to do so in praise, I want you to turn to Psalm 148 with me. And Miles and I didn't collaborate, by the way, on the song choices this morning. It's another one of those coincidences that the Lord works out. But we just sang, Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah. And this says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights above, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his heavenly hosts, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great creatures in all ocean depths lightning and hail and snow and clouds and stormy winds that do His bidding. You mountains and all the hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations. You princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens and old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn. The praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. And we're called to praise Him for all these things because we are close to His heart. Because there's a vision of all of this, a perspective on all of this that no one has. Only we have this kind of perspective. And so we're called to praise. And we are the ones who are allowed to praise. We have some sense of that which goes beyond the natural so that we see in our world and in each other something wonderful, something beautiful, something that I think bears the stamp of the image of God. Can you imagine what it would be like if this was not the case? And when I say that, I mean, what if it was the case that we were all just naturalists, that we had no notion of God having done anything, not standing behind this in any way. All of a sudden, the film that I showed you a moment ago of my granddaughter becomes, in a sense, meaningless. Because it doesn't matter in anybody's eyes, including mine, who she is, where she's going, what's going to happen to her what's happened to her, none of it matters. Not if we are all just natural. It's all superfluous. And the notion of beauty? There is no notion of beauty among those who can think of this only as being dust on the surface of the moon. Or maybe I should say, dust in the wind. It just doesn't matter. Ultimately, we're going nowhere. We have no purpose. Everything is simply meaningless. Even Solomon would say that. But with God standing behind it all, there is incredible worth, an amazing value, and we're given this wonderful place in his creation. And if we take that place and recognize that place, then there's something that happens for us that gives us meaning and purpose and beauty and love and something wonderful and spiritual that fills our lives. C.S. Lewis is best known for the Chronicles of Narnia a series of books of fantasy which tell of another world ultimately ruled by Aslan, the great king. But for Christians, Lewis is best known as the writer of mere Christianity, a book that makes much of the next direction that I want to go right now. We've just talked about the place of humankind before God. And we've talked about how there are some who might have an absolutely naturalistic perspective and from what I can tell have no purpose available to them in terms of why we even exist. And they would say the same kinds of things about the notion of morality among human beings. So that it's not just our human value which might get questioned. It's also the question of why do we do the things we do? Is there a reason why we should be kind to somebody as opposed to unkind? And I think that this, too, speaks to the value of humankind. It also speaks to who we are and what God expects from us. And so, this is the kind of thing in mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis wrote. And he quotes Samuel Johnson here. People need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed, said Samuel Johnson. Why? Why is that the case? Because we already know right from wrong. When God put us at the place that he did, he puts something inside of us. He puts inside of us a conscience. He lets us know that there is, in fact, right from wrong. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in Genesis chapter 3, when the fall occurs, we don't gain the knowledge of good and evil simply knowledge of good and evil with the eating of the apple or whatever it was, the fruit. And the reason I know that is because they knew it was wrong before they ate. God already told them, don't eat from that tree. As Eve approaches the tree in the story, does she know before she goes there that it's bad for her to eat that? Of course she does. She doesn't have to eat to find that out. She already knows. Well, where does that knowledge come from? Something happens with the eating of the tree. There's an an advancement in terms of her knowledge of good and evil. But she already knows good and evil before she ever eats. She understands that it's wrong. And that comes, I think, from God innately putting something within us. We already know right from wrong. We all believe, I think, in some sense in ethics. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one on him, he will be complaining, it's not fair, before you can say Jack Robinson. And I think that's right. We had that experience. That's what and who human beings are. Nations have the freedom to establish their own moral bounds, but when they create their moral laws, they almost always incorporate something similar to all the other nations. Why is that? And if they don't, we all stand up and scream or we go to war with them. And that's because we all recognize that we can't live and carry on in society without something like a relatively high moral ethic. If that's not there, we can't have community. We can't live together. We recognize that has to be part of the deal. The question is, why? Why do we believe in community And personal ethics. Why is it that all people have a sense of right and wrong? Why do nations and communities have morals and ethics as part of their structures? Is the reason for this a natural reason or is it not? I think that's a legitimate question to ask. Some see morality in nature, including human nature... And they view natural causes as the grounds for ethical standards and behavior for individuals and communities. For example, some think that morals and ethics can be explained as a necessary means for individual or social survival. And so naturally, we have ethics because if you don't have ethics, if we can't somehow get along, then our society will crumble and we'll crumble too. So it's just survival that causes us to create these kinds of morals and ethics. Ethics are needed for the survival of the species. Ethics are needed so we can live in communities. Communities are necessary for survival. The question is, is morality consistently needed among communities and individuals only because it allows us to survive as a species or because it creates a better life for the greatest number of people or because it leads to the greatest good for the greatest number of people? Are those the reasons that we have ethics? so that there can be the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Can human morality, which seems to be universal among human beings, ultimately be explained purely on the basis of nature? Well, personally, I'm not convinced. I don't think it can be. There is, I think, no natural reason for wanting the survival of the species. There is no inherent reason for desiring the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Based only in nature, the number one rule is survival not of the community, but of the self. Nature is ultimately selfish. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's my opinion. I think when I look at nature, what I see is something which is inherently selfish. And I therefore think it's difficult to get out of the selfishness of nature, the kinds of morals and ethics that I seem to see everywhere around me. If morals and ethics are seen as valuable because they lead to survival of the species or because they create a better life for the greatest number of people or because they lead to the greatest good for the greatest number of people, then these things must first naturally be of value to us. But there is no natural reason for wanting the survival of the species. There's no inherent reason for desiring the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Based only in nature, the number one rule is survival not of the community, but of the self. Again, nature is ultimately selfish. And so the bottom line is, is if there is no rational, foundational, moral underpinnings, I can't think of why I would care about you in the least. It doesn't make any sense to me. You're not that good. You're not that good looking. You're not that strong. You're not that beautiful. You don't have... All those things that I think I might want. In fact, as I said a couple of weeks ago, you will end up in competition with me. You're going to want my food. You're going to want to have my clothes. There's some of you men out there who 35 years ago, 37 years ago, might have wanted my wife. And so we would have been in competition And so I don't see why I need, if there's no underpinnings to our morality, for me to really care about you at all. And you know, this is so much the way the world is, and when I say the world, I mean the natural world, and then moving into the human world after the fall. Like, we know that there are no rules of morality between lions and gazelles, Lions chase after, kill, and eat gazelles. Gazelles run from lions. That's the way the world works. There are no rules between ferrets and chickens. Ferrets kill chickens. There are no rules between pike and pickerel. But there's also no rules between grizzly bears and grizzly bears. Between male lions, when both wish to be head of the pride. There are no rules between bull elk wishing to lead a herd. They do not see value in the other for its own sake. Elk do not say, hmm, that guy over there has better genetics than I do. I'll let him have the herd so that the herd can survive better. If a young lion goes and he kills or drives away an old lion whose teeth are worn down and whose strength is gone, this does not happen so that the stronger genetic strain can be preserved. The old lion may have, in fact, the stronger genetic strain. It happens because the old lion got old. And the young lion is now able to kill him or drive him off. It's not because the young lion is genetically superior. It's because he's still young. He wants the pride for himself. Notice he doesn't just ask the old lion to retire, which is what the older lion would do if his years of reproduction were over and he cared about the pride and he thought, you know, I really want the pride to flourish. I should just bow out and let this younger lion take over. So he just wanders off. That doesn't happen. If he is old enough and feeble enough, he may well be just killed by the younger lion. Or maybe he will run away because he's going to be killed if he stays. And what's fascinating to me is that we just recognize this, we accept this, and we say this is just nature's, in fact, I would say unethical way. We all recognize the brutality in this. No naturalist... No naturalist ever goes to two elk that are about ready to fight. Darren knows this because he's probably seen elk fight. No naturalist is out there, and I don't think it was Darren, saying to the elk, boys, boys, let's stop this. Let's just all get along. We can be friends here. We don't need to fight. Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever thinks maybe if we can just get in between the young lion and the old lion, we'll prevent them from attacking each other doesn't happen. Instead, this is absolutely accepted even by us, and we even look at it with a sense of admiration or interest or awe at what happens between these animals. We simply recognize and accept that nature is at times brutal. I remember the time that my father shot a starling with a BB gun in our backyard. And immediately... 15 or 20 or 30 starlings pounced on it and tore it to pieces right in front of us in my backyard. The other day I was watching a hunting video and it was a, they, were ter- they were hunting turkeys and there were two strutting gobblers that came up to this decoy and the hunter shoots the one turkey but it's not dead. The other turkey pounced on it and, you know, turkeys have spurs on their legs that are about this long. They are big. They look like horns, great big teeth or something growing off the back of their legs. And they use those spurs to rip each other to pieces. And so this one turkey is lying on the ground after it's been shot. And the other turkey is just using these spurs to tear it to pieces while it's still alive. And if you think to yourself, man, that's gross, Kelly. Do you have to tell these stories while we're here at church? Well, this is what the natural world is like. There is no compassion there. There's no love between young lions and old lions or respect so that the young lion's just going to walk away and say, well, I, you know, I better not get in the old man's way or something. Instead, he will tear him to pieces if he has a chance. My friend Steve Mann of Victoria has chickens. And what I said about ferrets earlier... He had a weasel that kept getting into the chicken coop. And the weasel would go in and he would attack the chickens and he would kill chicken after chicken after chicken just for the fun of it. He wouldn't eat them. After he'd had his fill, he just kept killing chickens. Because nature sometimes is not ethical. It's not moral. It's not loving. It can be brutal. No male grizzly ever looked at the cubs of another male grizzly and said, I will do unto the cubs of that other bear as I would want the other bear to do unto my cubs. Doesn't happen. The question becomes, where did the higher ethics of human morality come from? Have ethics and morals not just evolved to a higher plane among humans because of our larger brains? Isn't that why we're moral? Can we now see the value in the survival of the human species or the value of the greatest good of all where less developed species couldn't see it? Is love for others among human beings a result of natural processes? And I would say no. I would say this because if all the cosmos including the living organisms in the cosmos are natural there is no inherent reason why survival of another or the best life for another or the good for another should be of any value to us at all because they aren't valued in nature survival of the fittest and natural selection are not love or the desire for the best of all Love and devotion toward the future and others do not play a role in the natural world. There is no sense of right and wrong on the behalf of or good of another. When the ferret goes on a killing spree, he's not trying to do something good for the greater whole. This is not just a case of love or respect or something for the whole. It's a case of the stronger one just killing And no ferret is going to judge him for it. The ferret never feels remorse. He doesn't repent. He doesn't change. He doesn't go to ferret prison. It just doesn't happen. They are entirely different than that. Now, for those of you who think, yeah, but animals are so cute. Okay, and I see this on Facebook all the time. You know, these things that come out and say, This is why animals are so wonderful. Okay? I see some of that. There are some wonderful things that happen in nature. I think God is responsible for nature. I get that. But I certainly wouldn't call it rational morality. There's no sense of ethical responsibility when a female dog allows a kitten to nurse along with her puppies. It's just instinct. In the same way, it's just instinct. When a male cat eats the babies not only of other male cats but sometimes of his own. That's not a rational decision. And when they don't do it they don't stop themselves from doing it because of their love and affection. So I find the whole moral argument to be an especially strong argument supportive of an external cause for human morality and the vast difference between ourselves and animals. That we experience beauty and love and compassion and right and wrong seems to me to place us on an entirely different plane than that which is purely natural. And I would say that's because we bear... The image of our Creator, who Himself loves and who is Himself willing to make sacrifices for others, who does not just think of Himself, but who thinks also of the good for His children and even those who do not honor Him, whose love is as unending as His holiness, and who plants in us an image of His divinity. And no one else, no other creatures of any kind possess anything like it. Because we're made in his image. And I just don't know many things that give testimony to who our God is and how he stands behind his creation as the source of it. Than what even C.S. Lewis used as the mole argument. I think it's powerful. I think it speaks to the reality of God. Let's pray. Lord, I see everywhere the difference between ourselves and the rest of creation. The sense of love we have looking at little babies. The sense of compassion we have the stirring in our hearts. It's unique. And the way in which we look at our world and see it as being so beautiful, your hand behind it, weaving it together, it all looks glorious. And I think we have that perspective because you live within us and have made us in your image. And Father, the way that we choose to love or to treat others well, we know sometimes we don't God, but that's that's not because of how you created it, it's because of what we chose. It's because of the fall. You you chose to make us as those who have knowledge of right and wrong. And I just don't see how that could be there unless you had been behind it all. And so like Psalm 48 148 today, we praise you and acknowledge you for your creation, and most specifically, God, for the way in which you have created us. We praise you for that. Through Jesus we pray, amen.